This morning we'll continue to walk our way through John's Revelation. We'll be working through chapter 7 yet again. And then next week we'll have, I believe, one final message out of the chapter uh, 7 of John's Revelation to refresh what we looked at last week as we'll be able to, by way of refreshment, be able to look forward to this week, what we'll see in the same chapter is indeed we have come to the point in this text together, I think it is our third message now, to labor together, to put together, that the 144,000 servants of our God have been identified as the church of Jesus Christ. It is the church of Christ who is sealed by God in order that not one of His judgments coming upon the earth will consume them. This is the understanding of the 144,000. The purpose then of the seal where the angel is coming forward and he is coming with the seal of God to seal the servants of God. The purpose of the seal is so much more clear this way. We understand that the seal is to protect the church against the seal judgments. This is the coordination of the angel seal of God upon the servants of God to the seal judgments that are loosed upon the earth. Indeed, will they be extracted out so they won't experience the seal judgments? No. They have a greater promise than absence. They have the promise of overcoming by the grace of the Lord, sealed by the power of the Spirit, through the blood that ransomed them, that is Christ. This is what Paul describes. If you read your New Testament this way, you've seen this, you've read this already. We just taught a class on it for five weeks about enduring, about overcoming as a saint purchased by Christ. You recall, it is Paul as he describes your life in Christ right now. Not a future generation only. A group yet to be identified in human history only. You claim this text as your own promise in overcoming. Romans 8. Paul reminds reminds the church enduring to Redeemer this morning to remind you through trial and tribulation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Shall tribulation? Oh, we're not going to experience any. We won't go through any difficult age. It's not given to the church to endure tribulation. You've already read and claimed this text multiple times in your own soul. It was written to you. Those who, by the grace of the Lord, through the power of the Spirit, have come to believe in Him and so been sealed in Him to overcome. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? And then you read the language even further yet and find out it's the language of Revelation 6. Shall famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
to the church. No. It will not separate us. In fact, just like Jesus pledged to us, in all of these things, we are more than just, as he said, conquerors. How shall we conquer? Through him who loved us. This is the gospel. Not the avoidance. Not strategies to get out. But a Savior who has risen. Who has sealed us by the gospel. Covenantally will love us till the end. Through trial and tribulation. For we bear his seal. We have his name written on our foreheads. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. May Romans 8, indeed all of our New Testament reading, open up in light of Revelation 5, 6, and 7. But to the 144,000, if you're in your text of Scripture in the book of Revelation, I would like you to see just for a moment by way of introduction as we kind of conclude with this Revelation 144,000 and we make way into the church victorious and we see these pictures that are offered us. I want to uh, move forward by seeing this group one more time. And then we'll see this group, I guess, one more time. When we get there, but for now, to strengthen you in the Lord, once again, of your identity being sealed in Christ, I want you to see the church gathered unto him in Revelation chapter 14. If you turn there to chapter 14, where we see this group emerge yet again, and we will handle this text in three years when we get here. Hopefully we'll be able to remember what we said in chapter 7. But as we see from the gospel, as Paul explained it in Romans 8, as Jesus promised to the church in the seven letters. You remember as we look through the seven letters, his promise was indeed the same as Paul's. You're going to overcome. You will be conquerors to the church then who is sealed Guess what? You overcome. Here is the 144,000 who have overcome. Look in chapter 14. I'll read with you verses 1 through 5 so you can see this beautiful picture. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You remember last week we labored? Who is this promise given to? Church at Philadelphia. To you. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song. 
You, you saw this in Revelation 5. They were singing this new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, before the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is the new song of redemption that you sang in chapter 5. Look at this beautiful picture of the church singing the song of redemption. Verse 4, it is these, the 144,000, the church, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It is these who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. This is your song you're singing. A song of redemption. Glory to the Lamb. Verse 5. And in their mouth no lie was found. For they are blameless. It is He who is your righteousness. Blamelessness. Before the throne. So it is to the church we see these promises. Turn back with me to the beginning portion of chapter 7, for there we just are able to complete this picture of the 144,000 that we have seen, that indeed, if we take chapter 7 and we piece it together with their only other appearing in Holy Scripture, it fortifies our decision to this point. These are not a new first fruits group that we've yet to hear of in Holy Scripture. A group that we don't know who they are. We know who the first fruits who are. It is us who come after him, the first fruits of many. It is the church. It is not a distinct group yet identified. It is the church who has been redeemed out from among the earth. It is the church who is pronounced holy and blameless. Ephesians chapter 1. It is the church who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. John heard in Revelation 7 thus far, he heard their complete number, 144,000. This morning's text will begin in verse 9 as we move again to yet another vision within this same context. And I want to begin reading this morning's text of verse 9 in here in chapter 7 by showing you where this verse began. We're really looking in verse 9 at part C, if you will. It's, there's, it's kind of a compilation of verses. And it began in Genesis And the verse is being consummated here in Revelation. If you turn with me to see the glory of the Lamb and the work of redemption, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. This is really where the apocalypse began. Genesis 15. I'll read for you verses 1 through 6 or that you'll be able to rightly receive Revelation 7, 9. 
verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in, your, uh, in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give to me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, Abraham. Er, at this point, Abram. Number the stars. If you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Turn with me to part B of this same teaching in chapter 17. I'll read with you verses 1 through 8. Now you're considering in your mind as you're thinking with me. I know we have been laboring together. I see all of your brains bigger and bigger each week as you have graciously labored with me through chapter 7. And yet once more will we labor You're now thinking of Abraham's children and the promise that God made him covenantally that he will have more children than he can even count. Look in chapter 17 as this continues with Abram. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. If you held your place in Revelation 7, I begin reading for you with that backdrop, the conclusion to the covenant promises God made to Abraham as you now witness them in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples 
and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. They were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what we see here, the children of Abraham gathered. John heard their number previous within the passage, verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed. I heard it, 144,000. But also now in our text, he sees their number. The question I have for you this morning about the children of Abraham gathered here in this text, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the question I have for our time gathered together is this. Are these two separate visions or are they two complementary visions of the same people? Right? For weeks now, we've been identifying people in passages, right? We started in chapter 6. Who are they? No, really, chapter 5. Who are they? Chapter 6. Who are they? Chapter 6 again. Who are these people? Chapter 7. Who are these people? The 144,000. And now I ask you yet again, oh, so repetitiously, who are these people? The great multitude. Are they a new, distinct People, yet another vision that's distinguished from the one previous, or are they complementary visions together? The 144,000 and the great multitude, are they complementary or are they distinct? I submit to you that what is first heard in the ear to John is now seen with the eye to be one company of people expressed in two complementary pictures. This is important for you, saint. This is important for you. I hope to show you the joy of this passage in our next few moments together. That the church of Christ is what John sees, gathered victorious in heaven. This should be precious to you if you name the name of Christ this morning. We know what I have submitted to you to be true. Because of how John writes Revelation, the argument first for this being the same group of people is simply exposed to us through the way John is writing Revelation. If we just look at the way he meant to communicate to us, we see it's obvious that these are the same people. Look with me as John writes. I want you to see chapter 1. The way that John writes, so that when we come to chapter 7, we see that it is indeed clear that it is the church victorious in heaven. It is the saints. It is the children of Abraham. The way that John shows us this is through a sequence of how he writes. Chapter 1, verse 10. Look at the language of how he writes of this vision. Verse 10 of chapter 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard... Behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw. Do you see what, I, do you see what I'm doing with you? Chapter 7, 
John has so far heard the 144,000. Now he is seeing them. Is that inconsistent, the way that John writes? Does he first hear and then see? In order that in chapter 1 we see that the voice that he is hearing is not a different person that he sees. The voice belongs to him whom he just now sees. John heard the 144,000, but now he sees a great multitude. Are they different? Or is there a pattern here of how John is writing? I hear and I see, and those two things are the same. So far we see in chapter 1, indeed, it is consistent. I heard a great voice, and then I turned and I saw And those were the same. Look with me also if you turn over to two pages or chapter 5 as it is in chapter 5. You see in verse 5, the elder said to me, that is, I heard. This is the sequence of his experience. He is told something. He is hearing it in verse 5. He is told of a lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered And in verse 6, that which he heard, he turns and now sees. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw. So too, now into chapter 7. Verse 4, I first heard the number of the sealed. And now after this, I, verse 9, saw. In each of these visions that we have just briefly scanned, chapter 1, chapter 5, and now chapter 7, we're seeing the dynamic of how John is communicating to us, how he does so in each one of these visions. I hear, then I see. And I don't see something that I didn't hear. They're the same. Yet what John sees with his eye is this brilliant, absolute majesty of the fulfillment of what he heard. Do you see in chapter 1, he hears a roaring voice and he gazes upon the absolute majesty of him who was speaking. There's a striking fulfillment to what he sees with his eyes. John hears what John hears in the 144,000 and what he beholds in the great multitude assembled are not two separate things. then what are they? How are they relating? They are two different sensory experiences of the same thing. I hear sensory, and now I see sensory experiences that are distinct, yet of the same subject. This is the cry of Job, if you consider many of us have read this text a time or two, and we have been deeply moved by it. And this is what John is communicating in his visions. I hear and then I see. I hear and then I see. I heard and then I looked and saw. This is the progress of vision. 
Job says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I heard it. I knew it to be true, propositionally. But now, my eye sees you. At the radical transformation of the man Job in 42. I heard of you in the simplicity of the hearing with the ear, but now my eye sees you. Is it different what he heard from what he saw? No. Yet what he sees, it, it, it adds insight. It fulfills that which he knew to be true. It deepens in the seeing of the eye. So too with John. You know this to be true in your own life. You know something to be true, right? Various propositions in your life. Even indeed with your walk with the Lord. You know certain things to be true. I've heard him this morning from Pastor Adam with the ear. But have you seen with your eye? You know there's a difference there. The example that I would submit to you, this is insightful for me. As I was thinking, I have thought of this many times now that I have three children. Some of which you have undoubtedly been stepped on as they are passing through at 100 miles an hour. I do try to instruct them in the fellowship of the saints to watch out for all of you carrying coffee, but to no avail as they play tag with all the other children. And as I have three children, I have thought right when my son was born, what struck me like a lightning bolt when my firstborn, Owen, uh, was born, what really deeply moved me about my son, uh, was my relationship to my father. That deeply informed me about my father's love for me. I mean, I grew up, I, I grew up in, and by God's grace, I, 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 I had a wonderful upbringing, a, a deep relationship that I still share to this day with my father and my mother. It's a great grace for me and the Lord. And uh, they made many sacrifices for me along the way to, to set me into what they would determine to be a good situation or a better situation for myself. And, and, um, it, it, and I knew that. I wasn't particularly against them or rebellious against that or thinking that they didn't love me because they didn't let me go to the dance or something along those lines. You know, it was, it was I understood that they loved me. Yet when my, so, so I, I knew it in the mind. I would never speak against it because I knew it to be a truth. Yet when my son was born, it radically transformed my understanding of what I knew to be true. Now that I saw with my eye and felt in my soul for my son, it united what I knew with my mind to the depth of my own soul. It didn't change what I had known, but it showed forth its beauty to me in a second sensory experience of the same truth. It was more brilliant. I immediately responded by calling my dad and telling my parents how much I love them because I understood how much they then loved me, because I now am gazing upon my boy, whom I would mow all of you down for. <laughs> right? 
It was that I knew now by sensory experience my father and mother's love for me. I knew I heard of you with my ear. I heard the number of the 144,000 and it must be glorious. Oh yeah? Look at it. And it is more glorious than I could have understood by the hearing of the ear alone. This is John's way of telling us it's the same group with two different sensory experiences. And the different experiences strengthen and give insight to the same vision. I want to encourage you about this in your own walk as well as you consider the different sensory experiences of your walk with the Lord. Beloved, I would encourage you not to memorize alone the Lord's blessing. I know it to be true. I've heard it with my ear. But through prayer, long for its experiences to be made clear to you. For it is everywhere in your life. Let it not just be a mental data for you that He blesses me, but may by the power of His Spirit give our eyes to see it and our hearts to move with thanksgiving for it so that we don't just hear of others speak of the Lord's blessing and be particularly thankful people. Let us long to thank the Lord from our own soul for the blessings He bestows every moment of every day. I know it to be true. By God's grace, might I see it with my eye that I might live before Him faithfully, if to the church at Smyrna, even unto death, So it is in our walk with the Lord. It is true of the vision that we see. Notice how John describes for the next few moments, I want to encourage you yet again with these two pictures coming together. As I think by now I have beaten the dead horse into the dirt. That they are two shared sensory experiences of the same people. The church of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you just for a couple of brief moments how it looks that way in the passage beyond heard and saw with that context now created. Picture one in verse four, if you're there, to look upon the church of Christ. In picture one, John hears of the church of Christ with the emphasis that they are sealed on earth before the wrath of God comes. In picture two, John sees this same church of Christ victorious in heaven, experiencing all of God's covenant promises. Here they are on earth, sealed by God that they might overcome. What I saw with my eye is the church who overcame experiencing the blessings and covenant promises of God. I want to draw your attention to just two of the covenant promises that they are experiencing right there. 
Is it even within, just right here within Revelation, are we witnessing what Christ promised to the seven churches, to the church universal, as they stand before the throne of God? What are these promises we see right here in this text that they are experiencing that was made to them? The first one that I would draw your attention to, that they are experiencing the promise of Christ given to them, is He promised them in chapter 2, verse 10, to the church at Smyrna, you will stand faithfully. Chapter 2, if you're turning there, you could just see it. Verse 9 is the context of their tribulation. And He tells them yet again, you will be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. You will overcome. You will stand over and against this trial and tribulation. And indeed, what are the saints doing but experiencing the promise? They are, if you look there in verse 9 in the last portion, they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They have overcome just as Jesus promised. Second covenant blessing that they are experiencing at this point as those who are redeemed from the earth with the seal of God as they go through trial tribulation with the promise that Jesus said in chapter 3, verse 5. Look in chapter 3, in the fifth verse. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot His name out of the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. With that in mind then, you gaze right here upon the church and what are they experiencing? They're clothed in white garments. And they're standing right before the Father and His holy angels. This is the word of Christ to the church, and we're gazing upon its glorious fulfillment. John sees in this picture not a new group of male, celibate, ethnic Jews But he sees the church victorious, experiencing the promises of God, just as Christ gave to them. This is deeply instructive, I trust, for your own soul as you experience this age that is passing away, longing for the age that is to come. Also, might it serve, I trust, in this very moment, quite frankly, as a word of rebuke to those who are not found in Christ. Those right now who are not, yes, physically among the number, physically among the sealed, but spiritually in your own soul. Know that not to be true. I was speaking with a saint just a couple of days ago, explaining his church history to me. Speaking of his own father, 
for many, many years living within the church. Indeed, walking among them, gathered unto them, worshiping right beside them, on the Sunday school roll, along with everybody else, had his family gathered and in church, all the while knowing he was in unbelief. In this particular story, he was ransomed by the blood of Christ, saved to walk in newness of life. No one here playing that particular role this morning knows that that will be their outcome if they leave this day continuing in unbelief. You're gazing upon the future of the church. If you're not named among them, this is not your future. Let it be a word of joy to the saint purchased by the blood of Christ through repentance, forgiveness of sins, being sealed by the power of the Spirit in their life, having their name of God written on your forehead. Let it be joy to you for what has been promised will be laid hold of. And to those who are not, Let it serve as a warning from chapter 1. He will appear in a moment, and many will weep and wail when he does so. That is not the day of salvation. That is the day of judgment. Let the beauty of this text be instructive for each. Consider even further the two visions that are distinct yet complementary through a different sensory experience of the beauty of the church who is triumphant. In picture one, prophecy vision one, we see the focus is upon individual servants. Verse three, do not harm the earth, sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. These individuals is the word here. Let the saints be saved. Let the saints be sealed. Individual servants of our God. Yet in picture two, the focus is upon the church corporate in its beautiful, overcoming, majestic community. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. That is to say, if we were to understand salvation in this passage here of chapter 7, I submit to you that certainly we would recognize salvation is an individual decision. I cannot save you. Your attendance here cannot save you. It's individual before the Lord. Your parents cannot save you. You're not rescued by the blood of Christ through the community alone. It is an individual decision. But might we be reminded with the second portion of the same vision, it is indeed communal in its outcome. I don't need the church. I have my own church. I have my own house church. I hang out just with my wife. I'm discipled by myself. 
I live alone as an island unto myself. That's not the church. It's individual indecision indeed, but it is communal in its outcome. No, you don't live by yourself. Yes, you do need the church. This is the word of the apocalypse. The servants are sealed to be gathered into a multitude. Salvation is individual, but communal in its outcome. Christ's people, beloved, are a community church. Right? So we're Redeemer Community Church. Good for us, right? We got the name right. Just kidding. That's not the sense of which I'm speaking here. But Paul does indeed write, you belong to one another. I'm reading a book right now that um, I, I want to encourage. I, I think we only have a couple of copies here. It's um, $8.05 um, through the bookstore. And uh, this to read this book right now in pairing with our study through the book of Revelation uh, is deeply empowering and transformative. Um, if any of you know of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, martyred death um, through the German Nazis, this is a treasure trove of what he left behind. I, I, you know, th- this is, if, if you eat pizza and you have to have pop with your pizza, that's my wife, she whatever reason, can't drink water with pop, then that's your pairing. This is it. This is it. This with this. They go together. You know, your peanut butter and your jelly, your wine and your steak, however it is within the liberty of the body, however those function, these are your pairings. This is, this is deeply insightful uh, for you about life together that indeed... He speaks of how, biblically, just from John's Revelation 7, Christian community isn't an ideal so that we sit and we formulate and we come up with ways to create Christian community. So then you determine, do you need it or not? Is it cultivated just right for you and your preferences? Christian community isn't an ideal. It is a spiritual reality. We belong to one another. We don't talk about how we can come to belong to one another. We belong to one another. What is our point of intersect? Christ. I belong to you in and through him. You belong to me in and through him. That's a reality. Not something we create. So we see, seal the servants individually. They might be gathered in a multitude in a holy communion. Let me read for you as he speaks. And uh, once again, I cannot commend this book highly enough, particular at our time together. When God, uh, when God's Son took on flesh, He truly and bodily took on out of pure grace our being, our nature. He took on upon Himself ourselves. This was the eternal counsel of the triune God. Now we are in Him. Where He is, there we are too. In the incarnation, on the cross, and in the power of the resurrection. We belong to Him because we have been found in Him. 
That is why the Scriptures call us the body of Christ. But if, before we could know and wish it, we have been chosen and accepted with the whole church in Jesus Christ, then we also belong to Him, our brother in eternity, one with another. See the work of redemption? We'll get to the book in Revelation, all whose names are found, written in the Lamb's book of life. And where did that take place for you and for me? In eternity. Realized in time. Only to be a community for eternity. This is the work of Christ. I conclude with his paragraph. We who live here in fellowship with him will one day be with him in eternal fellowship. He who looks upon his brother should know that he will be eternally united with him in Christ Jesus. I don't need the church. I have my own thing going. You are united to the church. The body of Christ. In time and forever. Christian community means community through and in Jesus Christ. On this presupposition rests everything that the scriptures provide in the way of directions and precepts for the community life of the body. This is life together through the redeeming blood of Christ, gathered in time, experienced forever. Further demonstrating as we move on to our, conclude our time together, we see that through these texts, these complementary visions, they are indeed the same people. And we notice it next in verse 9. I'll read the whole verse and we'll stop and make comment. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Here's their identity. These people, this multitude, are, is from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages. This innumerable group, to unite these texts, are those who have been ransomed for God by the Lamb in chapter 5, verse 9. Do you remember the language is exactly the same? He's identifying the exact same group of people. They're singing in chapter 14 the exact same song. The song of the Lamb. The new song. The song of redemption. Because they have been redeemed out from every language, people, and nation. So too, who does John gaze upon in this very vision? Those exact same individuals with the exact same address. You from all nations. Both visions also not only use the exact same language of them being redeemed out from the earth from every nation, tribe, people, and language, but both visions show them doing the exact same thing. Standing before the Lamb, giving praise to Him who is worthy. Beloved, this is the church of Jesus Christ gathered victoriously through His blood. This is the consummate blessing 
of the children of Abraham. Who as God told Abraham, step outside of your tent, Abraham, and count the stars if you are able. Or perhaps, Abraham, trace out the granules of the sand and count them if you are able. So shall your offspring be. So John here, in its final consummate blessing, doesn't assign this group victorious any particular number. Because just like God promised, you can't number them. It would be like numbering the granules of the sand on the beach or the stars in heaven. No one can number those purchased by the Lamb's blood of life. Let us pray. Our God, we thank You for this text. We thank You for redemptive history. We thank You for the gathering of the elect from the four winds of the universe. We thank You for sending Your Son to gather them by His blood, that they would be ransomed from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And that just as You told Abraham, so shall it be. For all, Paul says, who are in Christ are children of Abraham. So Lord, let Your church this morning be strengthened. That they will be gathered unto You and experience the great day of victory, of crying out, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. This day, if we live in doubt and fear, strengthen us with these promises that are sure. If there is one gathered here who is outside faith in Christ, let it be revealed him. And if he already knows... Save him through this message. Let him hear the proclamation of the Son of God and so be saved. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.